beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you watch a tree grow? You might be thinking that's a bit of a dumb question. You can watch a tree all you want, but you're not going to see it grow. Trees don't grow that fast. As you are watching, you'll not see any measurable difference. Yet we know that trees do grow. During the past week, I stayed with my parents in Guelph for a few days. One of the things that struck me was how much some of their pine trees had grown. Little seedlings that my dad planted about 10 years ago have developed into nice trees, now standing some 20 feet tall. You'll notice the same thing if you look at pictures from your yard from some years back. Trees grow, but we're often unaware of the progress because we're too close to notice. In the Bible, people are often compared to trees. Psalm 1 compares a righteous man to a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. In contrast, the wicked are compared to chaff, to the dry material left over after grain is harvested, which is worthless and blown away by the wind. Jesus speaks about how a good tree bears good fruit and how a bad tree bears bad fruit. The Apostle Paul also often uses the sowing seed and the fruit-bearing images to describe the Christian life. In Galatians 6, he speaks about how we reap what we sow. Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The point is that as children of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be trees that are growing and developing and bearing fruit. What I'm talking about here is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. It's the process of growing so that more and more we may reflect the image of Christ in our daily lives. Please note a key word in the definition of sanctification, the word growing. Growing involves movement, development, progress. It is God's will that his children have been bought with the blood of Christ and made alive by the Spirit of Christ show the fruits of this in their lives. This is not an easy process or a quick one. In a dry year, a tree may hardly grow at all. At times, branches may become diseased and need to be cut off. But trees should grow, and so should we in our lives with God. This year, our elders are going to focus on sanctification as the home visit theme. They've asked me to preach in our text as an introduction to this theme. 
In Colossians 3, Paul encourages our sanctification, our growth in holiness. He begins by pointing out that we've been raised with Christ, made alive by His Spirit. Paul uses the image of putting off and putting on clothing to describe our growth in the image of Christ. If you've been working out in the hot sun and later in the day plan to attend a wedding celebration, you need to wash up and to get changed. You need to put off your old sweaty clothes to dress up in neat, clean clothes. In the verses leading up to our text, Paul shows how in our life with God, we need to put off the works of our sinful nature to put away earthly things. Our text details how we are to put on the new nature, how we are to more and more reflect Christ in our walk of life. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Since we have been united with Christ, Let us dress ourselves with Christ's clothes. We are to put on Christ so that we can live in love and unity and so that we can show forth our thankfulness. It's important that we focus for a moment on how Paul addresses his readers in Colossians 3, verse 12. He calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Paul's letter is not written to the general public in the city of Colossae. It's written to the church that was founded there by his fellow worker, Epaphras. Paul is writing to those whom God, from before the foundation of the world, has chosen as his own people. Paul calls them holy. They are holy not because they are so good, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness. We are made holy through the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross and the spirit of Christ who works renewal in us. Paul makes reference to that when he calls us beloved. Christ loved us so much. He was willing to die for us, to claim us as his own. The point is that through no work of our own, We are the people of God, redeemed by grace and renewed by the Spirit. Because we are God's people, we're called to live as such. The central call of our passage is that we live as God's holy children. To be holy means to be set apart, dedicated to God. We're not like the rest of the world. We live in this world and in many ways partake in society around us. Yet we're different. God has claimed us as his own. He calls us to live our lives to his glory. From all we say and do, it should be clear. We're devoted to Christ, our Savior. What kind of character should we as Christians have? What sort of works should we do? How can we show that we're different from others around us who do not know Christ? That's the focus of our text, our sanctification. 
To understand this process, we need to go back to Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. There Paul describes sanctification as the process of putting off the old self with its practices and putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, beloved, there is a sense in which the old nature is dead and we no longer have anything to do with it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But this does not mean that we will inevitably live the new life. Otherwise, why would Paul command us to put off the old nature, the works of the sinful flesh? While we are alive in Christ... We still need to fight against the sinful desires of our flesh. Perhaps an example will make this clearer. Can an adult become a child again? No, that's impossible. But can an adult act like a child? Of course, we see adults doing that all the time. While we are a new creation in Christ, we still need to more and more become new creatures in Christ. This tension between what we are and what we need to become comes out more often in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul calls the people of the church their saints, which means holy ones. In verse 4, he commands that we should be holy and blameless. We are holy, and still we need to be holy. On the one hand, Paul says that we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and that we have put on Christ. And he uses the present tense as if this is a completed action. And yet on the other hand, we are commanded to put to death what's earthly in us, and to put on the new self. The verbs are in the present tense, in the form of a command about what we still need to do. To explain this, people often refer to Paul's already now, but not yet, view of the Christian life. Something definitive has taken place. Christ has died to pay for our sins. He has risen to grant us new life in Him. God does not look at us and judge us as if we're a bunch of miserable sinners. In Christ, we are righteous and holy. Our identity is we are a new creation in Him. And yet... Sin so easily clings to us. The desires of our sinful flesh tempt us. It's so easy for us to be conformed to the ways of the world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's why we are holy, we need to be holy. While we are a new creation in Christ, we need to put off the old self with its evil practices and to put on the new self. For each one of us, this is going to be a lifelong struggle. 
will only attain the fullness of being in Christ in the life to come. So in the Christian life, Paul commands us to put on various virtues. He tells us to dress ourselves in such a way that we reflect the image of Christ. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassion is showing tenderness to someone who's struggling or suffering. Kindness is having a big heart for others, showing that you care about them, that you want the best for them. Humility is thinking less of ourselves and more of others. Meekness is being long-suffering, gentle, and considerate with others. Patience is being willing to endure in the midst of hard times, waiting for the Lord to come to your aid. When you contrast these virtues with the works of the flesh that we are to put off, you see how different Christians are to be from the people of the world. In our society, people care mainly about themselves. Many people are proud and arrogant. Their life is centered on me, myself, and I. Their sinful desires drive them to take what they can to make life good for themselves. They trample over others so they can get what they want in life. So how is that in your life, beloved? Would your spouse or children or classmates or those you work with describe you as being compassionate and kind and humble and patient? When I look at my life, I like to think that I have these qualities but I'd have to admit that they don't always come out. There's times when I'm impatient and arrogant and rude and self-seeking. There's certainly much room for improvement, much room for growth. I think if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that sin remains a power against which we have to struggle all our life. Our text continues by telling us that putting on Christ involves bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Bearing with one another means being willing to put up with the little things that may cause you some annoyance. We all have our own quirks and idiosyncrasies. We do things that rubs others the wrong way. As Christians, we should not allow these little things to ruin our relationships. We need to bear with each other in love. There can be circumstances when someone has said something or done something that hurts us. People sometimes treat us harshly or unjustly. The result may be that we have a complaint against another person. What do you do then? In our text, 
the Holy Spirit, through Paul, tells us to forgive each other. He commands, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is often very difficult for us. When someone sins against us, we have to deal with a lot of different emotions. With pain, and betrayal, and grief, and anger, and frustration, and the like. Yet the Bible says, forgive as Christ forgave you. How do you do that? Our forgiveness of a brother or sister needs to be modeled after God's forgiveness of us. Just think of the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Jesus teaches us that we are like a servant who owes his master a massive debt. Beloved, I want you to ponder a moment about your sins. Those many thoughtless sins that we so easily and willingly commit against God's holy majesty. Think about your constant and repeated sins. The sins that we struggle against and yet fall into again and again. Think of how little we hate the sins which sent Jesus Christ to the cross for us. Think about how blasé we can become just presuming on God's grace to forgive us despite how much we hurt him and anger him with our sins. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant goes to his master, promising to repay everything. Yet everyone knows he cannot. He owes such a massive debt, he'll never be able to pay, to pay it back. Yet the master graciously forgives his debt. That, beloved, is how God deals with us in Christ. He remembers our sins no more. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. As we sang from Psalm 103, he removes them from us as far as east from west extends. God doesn't hold our sins against us. He wipes the slate clean. That is how we are taught to deal with those around us who sin against us. But, beloved, there's a process involved in this. Our text speaks about having a complaint against someone else. If someone has hurt us by singing against us in some way and we're struggling with it, we need to voice our complaint. Matthew 18 teaches, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. When you're confronted with someone who says you've sinned against him or her, you need to take ownership of your sin. You need to ask forgiveness for it. God doesn't grant forgiveness to those who don't ask for it. There needs to be a conversation. 
And then comes the hard part. As Christians, we should always be ready to forgive those who have sinned against us. When someone seeks forgiveness, we should not be like the unforgiving servant in the parable in Matthew 18. After being forgiven his great debt, he was unwilling to show any mercy to a fellow servant who owed him but a small debt. We can be like that. We can be deeply hurt, personally offended, that someone would sin against us in such a shocking or terrible manner. And yet, beloved, we're called to forgive each other as Christ first forgave us. To wipe the slate clean. To no longer hold their sins against the person whom we have forgiven. The reason why Paul commands us to put on compassion, kindness, humility, and patience, and to bear with each other and forgive each other, is so that God's people can live together in unity and harmony. That is clear from what follows in our text. Paul tells us, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the supreme Christian virtue. It is the glue that holds us together, despite the annoyances and frustrations, the wrongs and hurts that arise in our relationships together. So what is love? Paul defines it for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, it's natural for a husband to love his wife, for parents to love their children, for citizens to love their country. You don't have to be a Christian to love in that manner. But there's also a different kind of love, a love that is self-sacrificing, a love that is hard, that is, that is ultimately supernatural. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says it's while we were still his enemies that we were reconciled to God. Here we see a different kind of love. Love that survives betrayal, and that endures repeated disappointment. God loved us despite the fact that we sinned against him and hurt him and angered him and betrayed him. This is the test of our true love. Are we able to love precisely the person who has disappointed us the most cruelly 
or failed us the most painfully or betrayed us the most inexcusably. That's Christ's sort of love. The love that survives sin, that's able to forgive those who have caused us the worst hurt. This is not a human love. It is a supernatural love. A love that comes into our hearts when we are united with Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 5 about how God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. This, beloved, is the fruit of being united with Christ, of being made a new creation through the working of His Spirit. More and more we will put off anger and wrath and malice and slander. And more and more we're commanded to put on love, the supreme Christian virtue, which will help us live together in unity and harmony. Finally, Paul instructs us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Peace is being restored in the right relationship with God. Our relationship with the Lord needs to be right for us to be able to live in love and unity together. But no beloved that Paul speaks about the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. He's speaking about how we function in our relationships together, especially as brothers and sisters in the church. There's supposed to be peace in the body, not warfare. We need to be united together in loving harmony. This is something to pray for, something to strive for, for the goal of dressing ourselves with Christ's clothes, with putting on Christ, is that we may live together in love and unity. This brings us to our second point, and it will see another reason for putting on Christ, so that we may show forth our thankfulness. Verse 15 of our text ends with the words, and be thankful. Verse 16 ends with the instruction to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in verse 17, Paul says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The focus of the last verses of our text is on being thankful. On being thankful to God. On showing this thankfulness in word and deed. We might ask, what is the connection between putting on all the Christian virtues mentioned in the first verses of our text? And thankfulness. Why does Paul stress thankfulness after all this talk about putting on Christ, that we might live together in love and unity? I don't think the connection is all that difficult for us to make. What is your motivation for loving God and for loving your neighbor as yourself? The Bible answers that question for us in a few words in 1 John 4 verse 19. The Apostle writes, we love for he, that's God, first loved us. 
God's love for us in Christ is the driving force behind living the Christian life. Sometimes people will do what the Bible says because they fear the consequences of not doing so. Some people are scared into right living because they're afraid that living wrongly will lead them to hell. Yeah, beloved, fear is not a good motivation for living a holy life. Whoever lives in fear does not truly know the love of God in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, verse 18, John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That is why in our text, Paul stresses, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word of Christ is the gospel, the good news about how God has given us his son on the cross so that we might be restored in our relationship with him. When we understand all that Christ has done for us, we're awed and humbled. God's love is so great, and we are so undeserving. Yet ultimately, that gospel makes us thankful. So thankful that we want to live in union with Christ. We want to show forth the fruit of belonging to him in our daily lives. We're called to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Teaching refers to positive instruction, admonition to correcting each other. Please note the stress on one another in our text. Christ has called us to be his body. A body is made up of many parts, which need to work together. We cannot be lone ranger Christians. We need each other. We need to be busy encouraging and supporting each other with the word of God. One of the most natural ways of doing that is through our communal Bible study. Beloved, we're starting a new season of Bible study. Make a commitment to join a Bible study and to attend regularly. You need it. And your brothers and sisters need you. Our expression of thankfulness to God for his riches in Christ will also come out in our singing. We're called to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Music is a very powerful force. Many of us listen to all kinds of different music on a regular basis. Often we learn to hum or sing along. Beloved, what does your musical repertoire include? I know that we sing God-honoring songs in our worship services. But do you also sing or listen to music that builds up your faith during the week? Learn to know and to love songs that worship God for all his awesome deeds. That kind of music 
will build us up in the faith. Our text ends with a call that whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the whole of our life, we are to acknowledge Christ as Lord, to live for him. If we are united to Christ, that he is our head and we are his members, that means we'll follow his lead in everything. It means that we will devote our time and our talents and our treasure to him. We'll do that by putting off the old self with the sinful practices and by putting on Christ, by dressing ourselves with Christ's clothes, by loving each other as he first loved us, by truly living in love and in unity together. Sanctification is the process of growing in holiness. It's a process of growing so that more and more we may reflect the image of Christ in our daily lives. It's God's will that his children who have been bought with the blood of Christ and made alive by the Spirit of Christ, show forth the fruits of this in their lives. Once again, this morning, we've been privileged to hear the gospel, to reflect on the wondrous works of God, on how he has redeemed us through Christ's blood and made us alive through Christ's Spirit. And now the question for you is this. Are you growing in holiness? Are you like a tree, a good tree planted by the waters, which brings forth its fruit in season? I know, beloved, we can't see trees grow. Our progress in the faith may be slow, but as we are united with Christ, we will grow and we will bear fruit. That's how we glorify God and how we show forth our thankfulness to him. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together from hymn 50. It's a song about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our walk with God.